0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Sergeant Johnson. Along with Dennis Carr and Jacqueline Francis, my first guest, John Bowles, is the co-curator of Sergeant Claude Johnson, a survey of the artist's career at the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens in San Marino, California. The show is there through May 20th. The exhibition features over 40 works, Johnson, a major Harlem Renaissance-era sculptor who lived in Oakland, California, made between the Great Depression and the Civil Rights era. It is the first Johnson exhibition in over 25 years, which is absolutely nuts. The excellent exhibition catalog was published by the Huntington. It's far and away the most important Johnson publication in 40 years. Also nuts. Amazon and Bookshop offer it for about $40. Don't miss it. On the second segment, Stacy Kranitz. If you enjoy the show, please remember to give us a five-star rating and a review wherever you download it and please tell a friend. John Bowles, after the break. Closing soon at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, Rebecca Morris, 2001 to 2022. Experience the large-scale abstract paintings of Rebecca Morris in this 21-year survey of her work. Known for her inventive approach to composition, color, and gesture, Morris's work offers a glimpse into new ways forward for the constantly evolving and expanding field of painting. Plan your visit at mcachicago.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Multiplicity, Blackness in Contemporary American Art, the first major exhibition devoted to exploring the breadth and complexity of Black identity and experience in the United States through collage. Works by multiple generations of living artists examine concepts such as cultural hybridity, gender fluidity, historical memory, and notions of beauty and power. By assembling pieces of paper, fabric, and repurposed materials, the artists create unified compositions that express the endless possibilities of Black-constructed narrative within a fragmented society. Visit mfah.org multiplicity to learn more. The Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents the West Coast premiere of Only the Young: Experimental Art in Korea, 1960s through 1970s. On view from February 11th through May 12th, this exhibition gives unprecedented insight into a vibrant moment after the Korean War when Korean artists rebelled against artistic limits, embracing bold and provocative practices. For more information on the exhibition and accompanying programs, visit hammer.ucla. And we're back. John Bowles, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: Hi, it's nice to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Sergeant Johnson's most productive period as an artist was during the 1920s and the 1930s, a period we associate with the Harlem Renaissance. How should we consider Johnson possibly within that context, even though he lived and worked in California?
1: Because right, he is, he was known in in New York and elsewhere during the during the era we think of as the Harlem Renaissance, the twenties and thirties. Right, he was he was contributing to he contributed to every one of the annual exhibitions the Harmon Foundation put on that was focused on the work of African American artists and won prizes at several at most of those, maybe several of those exhibitions. And his work was included in the you know when they sent touring exhibitions nationwide. You know, his work was included in those exhibitions. Art critics in New York wrote about his work. He was written about in the New York, you know, New York newspapers, including black papers like the New York Amsterdam News. So people knew about his work out there. But at the same time, he doesn't seem to have known the artists personally who were out there. You know, Alan Locke wrote about him as one of the two most important, you know, artists he referred to as neo primitives because of their what he saw as their references to African sculpture, and in fact saw Sergeant Johnson as the best example of of a black sculptor looking to African sculpture, you know, and, and finding inspiration in it. Yeah. So he's so there's all there are all kinds of ways in which his work is part of that cultural renaissance, but at the same time, you know, as your question. Suggests he's working so far away from any other artist. He's the only artist, really, west of Chicago, who's getting any attention as part of the Harlem Renaissance. So, how do we think about that? That's a really it's a really tough question. In the exhibition, we try to think about ways in which his work is engaging with different themes and ideas coming out of the Harlem Renaissance. And at the same time, one thing I think is fascinating about Sergeant Johnson is that while he's becoming known as as one of the most important New Negro sculptors in America. He's also becoming known on the West Coast as simply one of the most important modernist sculptors. You know, so and I think that's that's a part of his career that has not really been explored in a lot of in depth previously, and that's something that um, something we're hoping people will notice. That you know, there are lots of there are lots of different modernisms in this era. You know, lots of ideas about what modernism is but it's and it's clear you know when you look at the work that Sergeant Johnson is thinking about some of those several of those and and participating and getting recognized for it too at the time.
0: One reason that this whole question interests me is because I'm not sure I can identify anything specifically Californian in the ouvre can you <laughs> oh, yes <laughs> oh you'm glad you asked.
1: <laughs> Because for me, like, I think that's actually how I got started. That's how I became interested in researching Sergeant Johnson. I've been looking at his, you know, doing research on his work and his career for over a decade now. And the first thing I noticed when I was looking at his work was that, you know, people were writing about his work in terms of his interest in African sculpture. Right. And I think that's, it's obvious why, you know, because he's, Part of you know understood as part of the Harlem Renaissance, because Alan Locke was saying that was what was most important about his work you know. but when i when I looked at his work, I saw that I thought it wasn't necessarily as clear as someone like Locke was arguing for, and at the same time, I saw him interested in various asian sculptural, sculptural traditions, you know Chinese ceramics for example, and Buddhist imagery, I saw him interested in art of the Italian Renaissance, and he's clearly becomes interested by the early 1930s in the work work of the Mexican modernists. You know, Diego Rivera becomes a regular presence in San Francisco in that era, as well as other Mexican modernists, and lots of the San Francisco artists begin going to Mexico. Sergeant Johnson, we know, went in 1944 to Mexico and looked at murals, you know, there, as well as exploring his interest in pre-Columbian art and various indigenous ceramic traditions. It seems likely he went at least once before 44. So he may have gone in the 30s. Uh, it's not clear. But he's, But those ideas are circulating among all the important artists in San Francisco, uh, in the community that he's in, in which he's actively participating. So he's, his interests are those, I, from my perspective, <laughs> are, are those of a Californian engaging with various modernist, tradition, modernist ideas of modernism, especially those coming from, from Mexico, especially those being developed in San Francisco by artists like Ralph Stackpole, who had gone to France and you know, came back a direct carve sculptor. So there are ways in which I definitely see him as somebody whose work is different from that of any other art of the artists engaged in the Harlem Renaissance because he's in California because he's not in New York, because he's in California.
0: It's interesting you mentioned Stackpole, because I found myself thinking about him a lot as I read through this catalog. San Francisco institutions are worse than their peers anywhere in America in terms of studying and extending and celebrating San Francisco's own art history. And Stackpole is one of those artists who is everywhere around the built environment in San Francisco, but institutions certainly in my lifetime have totally ignored him. I think there is something to be learned by looking at Stackpole and Johnson together. Of course, I've been saying things like this for like my entire adult life. To know, people <laughs> wanted <Right.
1: laughs> to people, wanted to, people <laughs> wanted to talk about Sergeant Johnson in the context of ben, Benny Bufano, Bennymino yeah. Bufano, you another San Francisco sculptor, and I think that's in part because he studied with Bufano, but he also studied with Stackpole uh, in the 20s, possibly in the teens, but definitely in the 20s. But I think it's also because he worked as a as an assistant to Bufano for a long time, as you know, many artists do, trying to support themselves as artists, take on extra jobs, right? And, and I think Bufano liked to talk about him as his assistant because Bufano was averse to competition, for sure, <laughs> and always saw himself as... You know the number one sculptor, and and so I think, so I think people came to see Johnson as kind of Buffano's student. But I think it is important to think about him in relationship to Stackpole and to other artists of that of that moment. You know, and not just the sculptors, the painters like Otis Oldfield, who was a friend of oh, his. Yeah. You know, Johnson's deeply connected with everybody there. He gets uh, the same time that he same year he wins the award at the Harmon Foundation in New York for the best sculptor for Jester. He'd already won that award at the San Francisco Art Association for the same sculpture. He already won the Top Sculpture Award that year. He gets elected to the the juries for the selection and you know and prize juries for the San Francisco Art Association's annuals and becomes a member of the artist council. Uh, you know, he's like central figure in San Francisco in this moment. So thinking about him in terms of all those other San Francisco artists, I think is important.
0: Yes. Hello, De Young. Hello, SF Momo. Wave. Um, <laughs> let's pivot from there and and begin to work our way into Johnson's oeuvre and your exhibition with a bit of biography. So, where does Johnson grow up, and how does he become an artist?
1: Oh, so that's such an interesting story, and and I want to credit uh, Gwendolyn Du Bois Shaw for an excellent, really interesting essay in the catalog that the where she's done the genealogical research and she's tried to trace you know Johnson's early life because. Before this, before this catalog, there wasn't a lot of hard evidence about his, about his life before 1915. You know, so it's known that in 1915, he came from the East, and the story's been from Boston, to move to San Francisco, the same year as the Pan- Panama Pacific International Exposition, you know, the World's Fair that, or, that San Francisco held to suggests that they were a phoenix risen from the ashes of the 1906 earthquake right and
0: wasn't the only thing that got suggested in that rather borderline white supremacist show
1: (laughs) oh for sure (laughs) 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 but not a lot was known about his life before 1915 so before he comes west so it's it's really fascinating gwendolyn's uh, tried to track down you know you has found that he was born in boston there was a lot of dispute about his, the dates of his birth because like, he gave different dates and other official records had different various dates. So we can't say with 100% certainty what his birthday is, but we offer a suggestion in the catalog based on the, on the records. And in Gwendolyn's essay, she has, she's found that he was born in Boston to an African-American mother and a father identified as Swedish. So uh, it's not clear yet whether he was actually from Sweden, an immigrant from Sweden or of Swedish descent, that their family lived for a time in, in Virginia where his father may have passed for black to, so that they could you know, live in an interracial marriage. He and his wife could live in an interracial marriage. Ultimately, his father left the family. His mother died. And so he was taken in by his aunt and uncle The aunt by marriage was May Howard Jackson, another sculptor, another important black sculptor of the time in Washington, D.C. And uh, so Johnson and his siblings live with them for a few months, and then they end up in orphanages, split apart somewhat in orphanages in various places, but mostly in Massachusetts. And Johnson and an older brother and some other siblings end up in a Catholic-run orphanage where he may have gotten a little bit of art instruction. But then later, his older brother had moved to Worcester, Mass, and Johnson goes and joins him as possibly is still a high school student and takes some art classes there before going to San Francisco in 1915. And so Johnson's in his, what, his early 20s? Yeah, his mid-20s when he moves to San Francisco.
0: 27. Yeah. Thank
1: you. (laughs) Yeah, you know, he goes to San Francisco, and there's not a lot of detail about what his life was like in San Francisco before the late 1920s, but he seems to have taken art classes and worked as a frame maker, learned the, learned the craft of frame making, which is a highly technical and artistic craft, and something he draws on later in his work, for sure, too.
0: Johnson's first major sculpture, or at least his first nationally prominent sculpture, is a work from 1930 you mentioned a few minutes ago. It's called Chester. What does it show? And I guess, how did Johnson make it? So
1: Chester is a sculpture, it's a beautiful sculpture of the head of a boy. And I say a head because the sculpture begins at the neck and it goes up from there. So it's not a traditional bust format. And then one hand, just one hand. And the two of those, the head and the hand, or the neck and the hand, are joined together by a, a solid woodblock base. There are two versions of the sculpture that are known. There's the one that's in the collection of the same SF MoMA that we borrowed for the exhibition, and uh, LACMA, the LA County Museum of Art, has another copy, another version of it with a slightly different base, but otherwise pretty much the same. And that brings up the question like, what, uh, how were they made, right? If there are two, two versions, two copies of it, and I say copies, not versions, although I suppose you could say versions too. He used a mold to make these works. They're made of terracotta that he molded, and then he would have had to go in and finish, you know, do the detail work to some degree with that once he removed the sculpture from the mold. And then he's also added some color. And it's really interesting. He's not adding color in this sculpture by glazing the the ceramic. We don't know exactly how he added the color, (laughs) but he's colored it a little bit to make the sculpture slightly, a little bit browner. But you can barely tell that he's done anything to the surface. It looks like raw terracotta uh, when you look at it. And I think that's important because he's interested, my sense is that he's interested in using the material of clay in the, by, the, by 1930 as a medium. In a, in a modernist way, he doesn't want to conceal what the medium is. So I think that's one reason that in some of his sculptures, he lets you see the terracotta. I think he's also interested in using clay as a medium, because he becomes interested in the question of color and sculpture. You know how to make polychrome sculpture, for example. You know that's a question that he's definitely asking by the 1930s. And I think clay is a medium that he can use in that modernist way, right, where he lets you see the medium without concealing it, and at the at the same time. It's a medium that allows him to represent black skin colors or to suggest black skin colors that's, you know, for example, uh, very different from working in marble or bronze, although bronze can be used that way, too. And some artists of the Harlem Renaissance did that.
0: It allows him yeah. access to a naturalism that is true to the material, which is like mm-hmm. super modernist.
1: Yeah, exactly. Because I think he's coming. I think he's he's blending a couple of different trends in modernism from the time. He's thinking about archaism and mm. you know other artists who've been looking to ancient sculptural traditions as a way of kind of returning to a pre-industrialist kind of ideas about about humanity and the, spirit, the human spirit and what's truly human about us. Right? And so he's definitely looking to ancient Egyptian sculpture. You can see it in the way that he carves some of the eyes of his fig- the eyes of his figures. You can see it in the way that he. Details the mouths, the, the lips of his figures, that he's borrowing directly from stylized techniques the ancient Egyptians used. At the same time, you know he's thinking about direct carving, which has become kind of the the mode for San Francisco's modernist sculptors, right? Like Stackpole, who kind of initially brings it to, to San Francisco after a time in uh, France in the early twenties. Yeah, but that you know, for a lot of people who know about direct carving sculpture, you know, with the idea that that uh, a true modernist sculptor would take a block of stone, the harder the better, and carve directly their form into it. So you can't plan it. If you make a mistake, you can't correct it. You know, you have to work with it. There's a, a truthfulness, a naturalness right, to the materials that you don't conceal the me- the medium you're using. Right. And, and the, the artist is conceiving, it may start with an idea, but the finished sculpture is a result of the process of working with the stone, essentially a kind of negotiation with the stone in a way. And, you know, so you might ask, like, how is a sculptor working in ceramic, especially when he's making casts? You know, how is that direct carving? So I think for Johnson, you know, it's maybe not the same kind of direct carving. But a lot of that ethos of direct carving, the, the medium that you can see, the artist is engaging directly with the finished result. There's no assistant. There's no carver to produce a finished product. There's nobody casting a finished version for him. There's that modernist uh, kind of sincerity and mm-hmm. truthfulness and integrity I think he's pursuing there too. And you see it too, you know, I think he's looking at Brancusi, you know, you look at those bases for his sculptures and yeah, but the base for Chester is a simple block of wood stained really dark. So you, but you can still, because it's a stain and not a paint, you can still see that it is a block of wood. He's cut.
0: Until I read the catalog essay, I didn't realize that one of the two, at least one of the two versions of Chester was painted. And one of the things that got me thinking about so the sculpture dates to 1930 when daguerreotype would have been within living memory. Um, would have been within familial memory. And it was quite mm-hmm. common in daguerreotypey for producers, makers, photographers, to use a little bit of paint on the daguerreotype to give some whiteness-emphasizing skin tone to the sitter, who was otherwise presented as being fairly like silver and gray. And the little bit of color that Johnson added, for the reasons you referenced, left me wondering if he was aware of of that mid to late 19th century practice because it seems pretty related
1: yeah i think he was he did work for a time in the 20s assisting a photographer in san francisco Mm -hmm. possibly in tinting photographs so Ah. um, so he may actually have had direct experience that he's drawing upon and making gesture but like you said you know when you say paint like it's not um
0: yeah, I'm using the You're wrong word. Thick but,
1: paint on where you yeah. see the texture of the paint, not the texture of the of the terracotta. Right? It's like a it's, wash. I don't yeah, know. yeah,
0: that's a better. That's a better. That's that's the word I was looking for. So, so Chester is like 10 or 11 years old. Johnson made a heck of a lot of sculptures of children. He yeah. is not alone among black sculptors in of this period in so doing. William Artis, Augusta Savage. Why was Johnson drawn to making sculptures of children, and do you think his reasons are related to, similar to their reasons?
1: Yeah, I think some of the reasons are the same. You know, I, I think representing children is a way of, you know, children are, are allegories for innocence, for youthful potential, right, for the future. And so to make uh, sculptures of beautiful Black children you know, I think it's a there's a hopefulness. It's almost a utopian project to represent, you know, like representing the future of Black America through these children. And I think it's also a way of representing his neighborhood. You know, he's Sergeant Johnson in 1923. He's just he's newly married and buys a home, buys a house in a middle class Black neighborhood of Berkeley, a neighborhood that's redlined as a, as a Black neighborhood. It's adjoining other redlined neighborhoods. There's you know, one of the neighbor, adjoining neighborhoods is a neighborhood for people for Jap- people of Japanese descent. One's a neighborhood for people of Chinese descent, and one's a neighborhood of Norwegian immigrants. You know, all redlined together. So, you know, adjoining neighborhoods. And and I think he's from the what little evidence we have of who these children are that he's sculpting. He is sculpting actual people, uh, though they're highly stylized. And you know, for for example, Chester in his um, interview, his oral history interview with the Archives of American Art, done in the '60s at the end of his life, simply referred to uh, the boy who he modeled Chester on as that boy who used to visit my studio, or the boy who used to come by my studio, right? So suggesting that he's you know had a studio in the backyard of his house, and suggesting that he's like part of that neighborhood that the children could come over and watch. You know, Elizabeth G. Another sculpture of a Chinese American girl is a sculpture of his daughter's best friend at the time. So he's. So I think part of. So there are different reasons. I think part of it is the allegorical potential, right, for representing innocence and hope for the future. Another way is, and that it's that it be, those children become allegories for the future of Black America, and I think um, at the same time, they're a way of placing himself in his neighborhood, representing his neighborhood through those children. There is some evidence that he made at least one portrait bust of an adult. But I think you know, making portrait busts of adults in that era, I'm going to guess that he anticipated that white audience members, that white viewers, white art gallery visitors, might see sculptures of black adults in a different way than they might see sculptures of black children. Mm-hmm. That white Americans in that era might come with a lot of assumptions about, a lot of prejudiced assumptions about black people and uh, black adults. But the children, you know, they can be so disarmingly endearing right, that you can lose, you know, leave some of those behind, possibly. And so I think there's a way in which he's, like, doing some, he's strategizing, I think, as a way to, you know, how to, how to reach an audience with this message of a hopeful future for Black America.
0: It's probably also worth my noting that while today we imagine, maybe emphasis on imagine, California, as a progressive polyglot society, California was founded in white supremacy slavery was both legal and practiced within California in the nineteenth century, both black and native slavery. California was segregated as you noted some of the ways in which it was segregated. California was not a was not an unracialized utopia in johnson's yeah. time
1: and it's a reality he lived with it's clear yeah, yeah he's in the 1920 census, he's rec- in San Francisco, he's recorded as white. And this is an era when you didn't report, you know, do, you do your own census reporting. You, a census taker came around door to door. And sometimes in an apartment building, like Sergeant Johnson lived in at the time, they might just knock on the landlord's door and ask the landlord who the residents were and ask them what their races were, or may just to make assumptions. And yeah, so it raises the question: Did Sergeant Johnson have to pass as white to live in San Francisco near other artists you know, at the time? Yeah, you know, and in, and like I said in Berkeley, his neighborhood is redlined, and if he wanted to buy a, be a homeowner in the San Francisco Bay Area, there weren't many options for him. Yeah, so I think that's an important part of of thinking about his sculpture that it represents where where he was literally and you know, metaphorically. And represents his awareness of those you know, of mm. the, the the limitations on his life imposed by white supremacy in California. You know, at the same time, I think it's worth noting that the artistic community in San Francisco was fairly pretty multicultural for the time. Yeah, you know, there were
0: artists who were, well, there were more Japanese so than artists. it was at the end of the twentieth century. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah,
1: I think that's possibly true. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah, know. So I mean, at the same time, I have to say, like, he was the only well-known black artist in Sa- in the Bay Area at the time. So uh it was more multicultural than we might am- might assume. But there were limits to that he and other black artists, you know, came up against, and he did support and mentor other black artists in the Bay Area younger ones and teach them and advise them and things like that. But um, he's the only one who achieved really big success, who stayed there.
0: Perhaps because Johnson was already thinking about and interested in children, he also made sculptures of mothers, of Black mothers. The most famous of them is The Great Forever Free, one of the major sculptures of the first half of the U.S. 20th century. It's a sculpture uh, at SF MoMA made of painted plaster over linen and wood, which is a terrifically unusual combination of materials, especially maybe perhaps to still be in such good condition. How did Johnson select his materials, maybe using Forever Free as, as a way into that question?
1: Yes, Forever Free is a really important sculpture to me because it was my introduction to Sergeant Johnson as a child. You know, as a child growing up in the Bay Area, I remember being taken to the Oakland Museum of California Uh, which is an amazing place. And the first retrospective of Johnson's work had been organized there by E.J. Montgomery uh, in 1971. And I should acknowledge her work is incredibly important. Without her having gotten to know Sergeant Johnson at the end of his life and interviewed him and organized that exhibition, a lot of what we know about Sergeant Johnson would be lost. Uh, We owe a great debt to E.J. And, and I think the, uh, the, the sculpture didn't belong to the Oakland Museum. It was on loan from the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. But I, you know, for whatever reason, the SF MoMA allowed the Oakland Museum, I think, to borrow it for much of the seventies. So that's, uh, that's how I got to see it. And I remember, I can remember it was always one of the last artworks going through the museum. And it's the one artwork I remember that always made me kind of stop and look. It wasn't an artwork that my parents were you know that a parent was pointing out, or a grandparent was pointing out. Necessarily, it was what made what grabbed my attention. Uh, you know, standing on a pedestal, so it was up above, up in the air above me. You know, is this incredibly powerful sculpture? So we can talk about the subject matter of "Forever Free," but but you asked specifically about the medium, right? And it is a really unusual medium. I don't know of any other sculptor in the 20th century who worked in this medium, and uh, it's essentially a, a sculptural medium of that Johnson is innovating in making Forever Free. He created it by carving at least a rough form of the sculpture in redwood out of a single redwood log, including the base. It's all one piece of wood. And then wrapping it in linen and covering it in plaster, as he said. But at some point in, the pl- in adding the plaster, he adds color to the plaster. And then once he's got the plaster on and it's dry, he'd have to kind of burnish the plaster, smooth it out, and carve some of the details into that plaster. So he is actually carving into the plaster, not just into the redwood that's beneath it. And, and, and I think by adding color to the plaster and then carving into the plaster, he's doing something that's different from, say, carving, making a redwood carving and then painting it. He's not just uh, covering the, material, the medium with paint. He's creating a new sculptural medium Almost so you can almost ignore the fact that there's redwood underneath, I think. I mean it's a distinctly California medium to carve in redwood. But I think it's more kind of a step toward getting him to the plaster part, the colored plaster, so that he can actually carve into colored plaster this, so the sculptural medium has the color within it already. And then he covers the entire thing in a thick layer of varnish. So that it has this beautiful glossy, you know, exterior. So the color seems to just glow from within. So it, it creates a very different, much more compelling effect than just painting a wooden sculpture, I think. And it allows him to create a sculpture of a woman, a black woman and her children, where they have this, you know, their brown, the beauty of the brown color of their skin that just glows from within the sculpture is incredibly powerful, I think. And I think that's one of the things that makes the sculpture so appealing. He plays
0: the color of their skin off of her black dress.
1: Yeah, off of her black dress and her white blouse. Right, yeah, her white shirtwaist. Mm-hmm.
0: You suggested you wanted to take a swing at why Johnson made sculptures of black mothers.
1: Yeah, yeah, right. So, so I think so that it represents when Johnson turns to the subject of black mothers, sometimes with their children, or sometimes with children, sometimes without. It represents a real change in his in his practice. right, He's been making sculptures of children. That's the the earliest work for which he gets attention, that he starts exhibiting. And the next group of sculptures that he begins, and drawings that he begins making and exhibiting, are mothers, like I said, with and without children. So why would he make sculptures of mothers, of Black mothers? This is an era when a number of artists of the Harlem Renaissance are representing Black women in their work. Most often through the 1920s, those seem to be images of middle-class women, middle-class Black women, who are often cosmopolitan and urbane and very you know, uh, fashionably dressed and beautiful and sometimes light-skinned. And so there, as there are sort of distinctive kinds of women who artists are representing already. And with Forever Free, I think Johnson is making a different choice, that he's choosing to represent you know, sort of ordinary women. He's representing the you know, the people that Alan Locke would have referred to as the Negro folk. Black people coming from the you know moving from the rural south to cities like San Francisco, Oakland, Berkeley at the time. And there's some evidence that he was, you know, Verna Arvey, who would eventually, you know, in the later thirties would become a friend of Johnson's, writes in nineteen thirty nine about Johnson's work that he's basing his many of his works of the thirties on you know the the black faces that he sees in his everyday life, you know, in the Bay Area, suggesting I think the black the you know the faces of, of black people moving from the South as part of the Great Migration, and and in making that choice, you know Johnson, I think he wants us to know it. So, for example, the woman in Forever Free is dressed in you know clothing and fashions that were out of date by the night by the time he made the sculpture. You know, they're more like turn of the century fashions. You know, looks a little more Victorian in her style of dress she's barefoot, she has her head wrapped, her hair wrapped like she's preparing for work or you know, do some kind of household work or something like that. And I think it's possible, you know, and then has these two children, beautiful children (laughs) sorry (laughs) Uh, she has these two beautiful children who she's clutching affectionately to her skirt and, you know, with, uh, with such affection that, you know, Sergeant Johnson suggests it by carving them simply in relief into her skirt. So they don't actually emerge, you know, as separate as separate people. They're part of her, like, literally part of her in the sculpture.
0: Standing on her feet, even.
1: Yeah, both of them stand on her feet, right? It's a really beautiful and clever, like, there's a little humor there, and It's an incredibly compelling sculpture. It won the award at the San Francisco Art Association in 1935 for the best sculpture again. The Harmon Foundation showcased it in a solo exhibition when they did three solo exhibitions for artists in in New York City, where art critics wrote about it. And and I think art critics in San Francisco and New York both looked at it and looked at some of the drawings that johnson was making of mothers and children and saw the mexican the influence of the mexican modernists in those works so they call that out in their in their reviews like call it out and identify it in the, their reviews and i think that's telling because of the time you know Diego rivera like i said had this regular presence in san francisco he too is making paintings of mexican mothers with their children and pointedly making paintings of women who he he thinks of as sort of the Mexican folk, right? Um, Not the upper classes, uh, not elite, you know, fashionable, elite women of Mexico City, but uh, women from some of the more rural parts of Mexico. And I think Johnson is kind of taking a page out of Rivera's book there in finding something of value and importance in, you know, Black people who have not had access to the you know the sorts of education, for example, and things like that that Johnson has had, and in fact, there's a story that the the woman who modeled for Forever Free was a woman who did domestic labor in Johnson's middle class black neighborhood, so uh, somebody who was not middle class herself. And uh, there's a well, I could go on, <laughs> I could say a lot more about this, but I I think it's really interesting and important, and uh, and there is there is some evidence that not everyone was happy with this decision that he made to represent to represent black women who were not obviously middle-class and cosmopolitan and up-to-date in their fashions. that Some people found that kind of disconcerting or uh, objected really strongly to, in one case, I know.
0: Beginning in about the mid-1930s, Johnson will make a series of copper and paint sculptures that recall African masks. Why does he pivot from highly naturalistic forms to more mask-like forms. Is he responding to Alan Locke or some other reason entirely? Right.
1: Yeah, I mean the easy answer would be to say he's responding to Alan Locke's call for black artists to look to African sculpture and its forms. And I think that's part of what he's doing in those in those sculptures. He begins making them around the same time he begins making the the sculptures and drawings of black mothers too. And the, the, the hammered copper masks, uh, which he's painted in various ways, I think are really are really interesting works because they're more abstract than anything else he's been doing at the time. You know, up to that point, they do recall African masks in some ways, which I think people saw at the time you know, recognized that he was doing that. But there are ways in which they also, I think, are meant to represent. Real people, not specific portraits like the children, like the portraits of children did had in the in the nineteen twenties, but I think they are meant to suggest something about modern black people, and you know, in California at least. And that those are the sculptures that Vern Arvey writes of Johnson having found inspiration for in the faces of people of black people he met every day, you know, living in in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I think there's a way in which those sculptures. Are trying to celebrate what he sees as the distinctive beauty of black people. Uh, You know, there's a statement that he makes in the San Francisco Chronicle in 1935, the only statement he ever published during his lifetime about his work, in which he says that he's trying to capture, uh, you know, that characteristic, that characteristic appearance of black people in those, in his sculptures. And a lot of people have, have interpreted that as kind of a, Mission statement for his entire career, which I think is, is an overstatement in some ways. But I think in terms of these sculptures, it applies, you know, the sculptures he was making at the time that he made that statement, that he really is trying to find something distinctive about black like, facial features that he can, that he wants to celebrate through forms. You know, I think it's important to him to look to African sculpture because it offers an alternative to the, you know, academic the ways that academic artists in the U.S. and and Europe had been representing black people, right? He's breaking out of that kind of straitjacket of how you're supposed to represent black people that that was developed by white artists and trying to look to the work of black artists, other black artists, to find inspiration that he can draw upon uh, for an alternative. And that fits in perfectly with the kind of direct carving ethos of the San Francisco Bay Area, where artists like Stackpole are celebrating you know, artistic traditions from around the world, from different eras, including art from Africa.
0: Let me interrupt there, because one of the strengths of the catalog for the show is that you and your co-authors emphasize the breadth of sources and traditions from which Johnson pulled, and really across his whole career. So he's not mm-hmm. looking only at Harlem or only at Oakland, but yeah. he's looking and thinking global, globally in a way that I think is unusual among u s modernists of the era, so what are some of the places, some of the geographies he's looking at and some of the sculptural traditions about which he's thinking and migrating into his work
1: he is I think you're right that he is looking to a broader range of sources than most American modernists of the era he is as I've said he's you know as we've discussed already, he is definitely looking to African sculpture for some of the ways in which you know facial features and Physical forms can be abstracted and stylized. He's definitely looking to Chinese and, and possibly other Asian ceramic traditions, and you can see that in in a number of works uh, of his, including in the exhibition. I think the most striking example is Elizabeth G. But I want to make the point that he's not only thinking about um, Chinese ceramic traditions when he makes an artwork, an artwork representing a Chinese Chinese American girl that he. It's thinking about many ceramics and glazes in a number of works that are in the show and, and including some that are not in the show. He is thinking about Latin American modern or Mexican modernism, for sure, as, as we've discussed also, both in its forms and in you know in the messages, the social, social messages, what we sometimes refer to as social realism. And he's also really interested in indigenous sculpture, indigenous ceramic traditions. So for example, in the 40s, when he begins going to Mexico, he begins also traveling to Oaxaca and spending time with indigenous potters in Oaxaca who were working with a distinctly black clay, a uh, black clay that was distinct to the region of Oaxaca. And he would you know, kind of learn their techniques, study their techniques, meet, uh, make some of his own sculptures and bring them to, to be fired by the Oaxacan potters. So he's, you know, working literally with them, side by side with them, as he's learning from them, as he's trying to figure out, you know, learn more about what they're doing. And I think there is possibly some evidence he did some, at least later in his career, use some local clay in the Bay Area, too, in sort of his sculptures. So he's, you know, which is probably a lesson learned from those sculptors and those ceramicists in Oaxaca. So he's definitely looking, you know, he travels to Japan later in the 1950s he continues to explore, I think, throughout his career. And that is one thing we really wanted to emphasize in the catalog. There is a whole essay that we've co-written, me and Jackie Francis and Dennis Carr, emphasizing how kind of global Sergeant Johnson's perspective is in this era, and, and how that sort of fits in with what's going on in the Bay Area, but that it's also very distinctive. And it's part of what I think suggests his kind of Californian's perspective on things and how his work is different from that of many of the other artists of the Harlem Renaissance or many other American
0: modernists at the time. Even of the succeeding generation. I mean, it's not like the Bay Area School Fig X artists were looking at Japanese painting. You know, they were too busy looking at New York, right? I mean, so (laughs) Sergeant Johnson was like generations ahead in his looking across the Pacific, which is another element of his practice that is ripe for further investigation, I think, in future projects.
1: He's definitely blending these, you know, borrowing from different traditions in the same sculpture. So like in the yeah. show, you can see this interest in Chinese glazes. And at the same time, the, that one is not just a head, it's a bust, but it's a bust format that he's borrowing from 15th century Florence. From both uh, ceramic artists of 15th century Florence and from other kinds of sculptors uh, who are working marble for example you know with this kind of graceful backward lean of the torso the torso cut off you know kind of mid torso you know this and then uh, in a base that's meant to I think look like well, a piece of old lacquerware Chinese lacquerware too
0: the exhibition doesn't include only uh, floor-ish mounted sculptures but also examples of engagements with Sargent's public projects, such as an organ screen he made for the California School for the Blind in Berkeley, a cubist sculpture freeze called Sea Forms, and a, I guess you'd call it a freeze, for um, George Washington High School in San Francisco. I guess two questions. One, how did Sargent come to have opportunities to do these really quite large public works? And secondly, kind of something I've always wondered about, about Johnson is is how did he go from making these kind of torso-sized and smaller sculptures to then doing these public works at enormously different scale with like almost nothing in between or no evident migration in enormity.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely true. He makes seems to make kind of small, relatively small sculptures and massive sculptures, (laughs) nothing in between, almost nothing in between. (laughs) Yeah, so I think to your question of how he gets to make these public artworks, I I should start by saying, one thing we really wanted to emphasize in this exhibition is that Sergeant Johnson is important in part because he made public artworks, because of the quality of the artworks and because those artworks, were a kind of validation of his standing in the Bay Area. The very first public artwork he made was as part of the PWAP, the Public Works of Art Projects, which is a federal art, federal art project that predates the WPA uh, federal art project. And for that project, you know, the, uh, as Marianne Kahlo has pointed out in her recent book, like one of the primary criteria for getting one of those projects on the PWAP was the quality of your work. You had to pose a work, It had to be accepted by the local administrator or regional administrator, and then you'd be hired onto the project. And so it says something about Sergeant Johnson that, you know, when he's only making small sculptures, only known for small sculptures and drawings and prints, that he gets, that he's able to secure this commission for the California School for the Blind to make an organ screen and six lunettes, six window lunettes originally 1933 end of 1933 he's commissioned to do that by the pwap and they authorize him to hire an assistant they, he's a master artist on the project and is hired to, is authorized to hire an assistant uh, to work with him on the project and so he makes this massive beautiful massive organ screen carved from redwood and uh, i think redwood Possibly because it's soft and relatively easy to carve, but also because of the distinctive redness of the color of the wood. You know, it's also a local, (laughs) a local wood. And because redwood trees were still, there were still so many really large redwood trees that could be harvested. You could work with a really big piece of redwood to make an organ screen. Uh, it's made in multiple parts, but there's still big pieces of wood he's working with. One thing I love about the exhibition is that we are able to reunite for the first time in over 40 years all the pieces, or almost all the pieces, of his project for the California School for the Blind. In 1980, the school moved to a new campus in Fremont, California. And uh, when they left the campus at Berkeley, the University of California, Berkeley, took it over. Unfortunately, at that point, Berkeley, UC Berkeley kind of lost track of some of the pieces of the, of the organ, of the, the organ screen specifically and some of the other pieces. In the, our exhibition, we're able to showcase that as of last year, all the pieces of that project that Sergeant Johnson made are now back in public collections. So UC Berkeley still owns one, uh, a later addition to the project that, that we have on display. The organ screen is owned by the Huntington. And the, of the six window linettes, two are owned still by the California School for the Blind, which they've been displaying in their library. And the other four have just recently been donated to the Oakland Public Library for their African American Museum and History Center. So it's, it's, for me, this is like a celebration of the fact that all these works are back in public collections that we can bring them. And because of that, we can bring them all together, you know, for this exhibition. They are the organ screen and the proscenium that, uh, arch that he carved later in the '30s are both really huge monumental works and, re- and really beautiful works too. I think that's—I mean—that part of the show, it's in and of itself, is worth going to see the show just to see all those pieces put brought back together. And in addition, a, a ludette that he created for a doorway to go over a doorway at the school too that represents Louis Braille, who's um, technique of of transcribing writing uh, so that blind people could read it had just recently been adopted by the California School for the Blind when he created this project in the early
0: 30s. I can't wait to see it. John Bowles, thank you very much. All right. Thank you. Thanks, Tyler. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents Surrealism and Us. Caribbean and African Diasporic Artists Since 1940, on view March 10th through July 28th. Organized by curator Maria Elena Ortiz, Surrealism and Us is inspired by the history of surrealism in the Caribbean with connections to notions of the Afro-surreal in the United States. Representing a global perspective, this exhibition is the first intergenerational show dedicated to Caribbean and African Diasporic art presented at The Modern. Inspired by the essay 1943 Surrealism and Us by Suzanne Cesaire, the presentation includes over 80 works from the 1940s to the present day in a wide range of media such as painting, sculpture, drawing, video, and installation. Centered on the intersection of Caribbean aesthetics, Afro Surrealism, and Afrofuturism, Surrealism and Us explores how the exhibited artists have interpreted a modernist movement. Artworks framed within a pre-existing history of Black resistance and creativity illustrate how Caribbean and Black artists reinterpreted the European avant-garde for their own purposes. Located in the heart of downtown Berkeley, at the edge of the University of California campus, the Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive is one of the nation's leading university art museums, a locally rooted, globally relevant institution that connects audiences with the most exciting artists and filmmakers of our time. Uniquely dedicated to both art and film, BAMFA hosts more than a dozen art exhibitions, hundreds of film screenings, and countless public programs each year, with a growing emphasis on contemporary work by Black, Asian, and Latinx voices. To see what's on view and plan a visit, go to BAMFA.org. On view at the Getty Center through July 7, 2024, the fascinating new exhibition First Came a Friendship. Sydney B. Felson and the artists at Gemini GEL takes you on a journey through five decades of photographs documenting Los Angeles' evolving art scene. For the first time, the Felsen Archive explores the remarkable history of Gemini GEL, artist's workshop and publisher of limited-edition prints and sculpture. See photographs of Roy Lichtenstein, Robert Rauschenberg, and more artists at work and witness the close friendships Felsen fostered with them. The exhibition also features prints from the studio, alongside related sculpture and drawings. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. Welcome back. Next up, Stacy Kranitz. Earlier this month, ProPublica published The Year After a Denied Abortion, an extraordinary story and photo essay by Kranitz and Kavitha Sarama. The piece follows Maryn Michelle Hollis as the state of Tennessee simultaneously questioned Hollis's fitness to care for her four children and forced her to continue a life-threatening pregnancy. This segment was taped in September 23, when Kranitz was on the program on the occasion of A Long Arc, Photography in the American South Since 1845, debuting at the High Museum of Art in Atlanta. The exhibition opens at the Addison Gallery of American Art in Andover, Massachusetts this weekend. It will remain on view there through July 31st. A Long Arc considers the South as a forger of American identity and examines how Southern photographers have contributed to both the advance of their medium and the United States project. A Long Arc was curated by Gregory J. Harris and Sarah Kennel. The catalog was published by Aperture. Kranitz's work, primarily made in the Southern Appalachian Mountains, presents the complexity and instability of a rugged region on which industry has long preyed. Her work is in the collection of museums such as the Harvard Art Museums and the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. Her 2022 book, As It Was Given to Me, one of my favorites, was published by Twin Palms and was shortlisted for a Perry Photo Aperture First Photo Book Award. Bookshop and Amazon offer it for about 75 or 80 bucks. Stacy Kranitz, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
2: Oh, uh, thanks so much for having me.
0: Over the nee, last decade or so, you've become perhaps the most prominent artist to make work about life and land in the Southern Appalachian Mountains. It is a place to which you came from Los Angeles, or at least greater Los Angeles, and New York City. So how and why did the Southern Appalachians become a place of interest and, and subject?
2: About 2009, I went through a kind of crisis with my work. And, you know, I've always been a magazine and a newspaper photographer on assignment. And I found this was sort of the, my dream job, the thing that I most wanted to do. And I went out and I started working in that industry. And like so many people, you, you end up realizing that the industry that you're working in is really not what you thought it was. And fortunately for me, there was a big financial Crash in 2008, and the media industry was one of the casualties. And it gave a chance to really kind of think about what was making me so unhappy um, doing that kind of work. You know, and the thing that I kept thinking about was this idea of how, like, my work kind of lived on the surface of an idea, and I really wanted it to live the idea. And so I kind of set out to make more intimate bodies of work. And I also was looking for a way to talk about some of the failures of the documentary tradition. It's a tradition that I love, but it's also very problematic. And so I was working on another project called From the Study on Postpubescent Manhood, and that project happened to be in Appalachia. So I found myself there Let me interrupt for a
0: quick second. That project was in southern Ohio, right?
2: Yes, southern Ohio, south uh, eastern Ohio, the Appalachian section of Ohio. And I realized that I was, you know, in this place that had been harmed by photography, and you know, had been sort of forced into being the poster child for the war on poverty. And the relationship with photography was very contentious in this particular place. And so. I set out to kind of understand better what Appalachia was and because I happened to just be there. And so and I had some time on my hands before I started graduate school. <laughs> so so I set out in my car and I started making circles and kind of exploring this place. And I remember when I first started making the work, I was really interested in stereotypes and the idea of stereotypes, uh, because, you know, they get a real bad rap, but they're, you know, they're useful to us as humans help us understand and process a place. And so I would go and find those stereotypes. And then I would attempt to undo that stereotype, find something that completely defied. um, So like, uh, I, of course, went to snake handling churches. But then I, you know, of course, Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and then an, a clan rally as well, uh, you know, I, I found like a queer commune. And so I think the very beginning of the work was really about kind of looking at stereotypes.
0: The oeuvre in, in general is an oeuvre oriented around complicating, reductive narratives and understandings of place and people. So the region in which we both live, you live on the eastern Tennessee side of the southern Appalachians, kind of just where they're beginning to grow up. And I live on the western North Carolina side, kind of in the middle of them, is richly represented in, in United States art. And art has been impactful within this region. Think of George Massa and his impact on the Appalachian Trail and the creation of Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Or Elliot Porter and and the Clean Water Act. But that history is generally been skipped over by coastal arbiters. I mean, you won't find masses work in any coastal collections, for example, right? So you more or less opened your book as it was given to me with an image of a painting establishing this region within the tradition of 19th century American painting. And there are other 19th century American paintings noted throughout the book. So so that book that you, I'm sorry, that painting you more or less opened the book with is a George Caleb Bingham, specifically Bingham's Daniel Boone escorting settlers through the Cumberland Gap. And other pictures of Boone, think William Ranny, are prominent throughout the book. Why are those pictures important to your practice?
2: I came across this catalog. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's called the Columbus of the Woods. And it's a collection of images of depicting Daniel Boone throughout his life. And it really... Captivated. Columbus
0: of the Wood sounds like a fungus, but go on.
2: It just sounds like a fungus. <laughs> As I said it, I was like, oh, that sounds off. Uh, but uh, it is the title of the exhibition and the catalog that I have. Uh, oddly, I have two copies. Anyway, so I was really interested in, you know, the history of the documentary tradition and how it kind of evolved from this sort of like, colonial construct. And I felt like Daniel Boone, depictions of Daniel Boone really uh, were a great way to sort of talk about how we ended up, you know, this, this idea of the travel narrative, these sort of colonial travel narratives, I feel like they kind of are part of the lineage that That I am participating in. And, you know, on my end, it would be, I guess you would call it like the genre of road trip photography. So you're looking at like uh, Alex Oth, um, Justin Curlin, you know, this Robert Frank, right, this history of people. and And I really wanted to make sure that I, I connected myself. To that history, it's the history of an outsider becoming an insider. It's the sort of move of, of Daniel Boone into Kentucky, and he became known as a Kentucky frontiersman. But of course, he he is from, I believe, somewhere in Pennsylvania. I'm remembering his history correctly. Came down, he swooped down into North Carolina. And then he came up through the Cumberland Gap. And so I was very, very interested in these images. These images are everywhere in Appalachia. He celebrated in all these different ways. And also at that time, I was trying to figure out a way I began to amass a lot of images um, in this project that I didn't really know what I was doing with. And so I found that there were three types of images that kept coming up over and over again that many painters depicted. The first was the, there's the, him pointing out Kentucky, his discovery of Kentucky. Uh, He did not discover Kentucky. He would even never say that he did. But a lot of people attribute that the discovery of Appalachia to him. I always try to say he he was the person that ushered in capitalism to Kentucky, which is a notable thing. But very different from discovering it, and then there's that moment where he takes some settlers with him over the Cumberland Gap, and they make it look like this is his first time coming over into that legend. But he had already done this like three times before, (laughs) and so and then arrival—that's arrival—and then the next section is called exploration, and that's where things get really murky because the you know colonizers and the um, uh, or the colonialist and the um, native population kind of mix in very strange ways and in this case Jemima Boone his daughter is taken by the Shawnee and held captive and then there's this like really beautiful rescue but and then the last section is salvation and that is when Daniel Boone retires I mean, to Missouri where there's a, been a fight over his bones I don't know if you know this but half of his bones are buried in Missouri and the other half are buried in The place I was born, Frankfurt, Kentucky. And so I found this to be really helpful as a way to start to organize the work. And so that's kind of how I became really interested in those images.
0: Interesting. You mentioned kind of that 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 Boone history rippling through European American culture. Within European American culture, that story, the story of the capture of Boone's daughter, kind of ripples through media. So the story is first told in an 1813 book called The Mountain Muse, written by Daniel Bryan. And then it is massively popularized in an 1821, I think, 21 poem by Samuel Metcalf called Indian Warfare in the West. So it, it, you know, it's a great example of how American art is responding to various forms of American literature, all of all of which is mythologizing events that were mythologized. So speaking of Boone and speaking of the settler colonial project across the Appalachians, violence is a major subject in your work, especially in your series, the one you mentioned a moment ago from the study on post-pubescent manhood, which is included within the recent Twin Palms book. In fact, violence has been a subject really from like the earliest project you present on your website, which I think we'll come back to at the very end of our conversation. Is your interest in violence... At all related to the violence behind or or masked by those Bingham and Ranny and whatnot paintings of Boone, those paintings of Western settler colonialism.
2: No, oh, I mean it definitely predates my relationship with those images and that catalog. Um, I became really interested in violence because it made up the you know a huge part of my life, my childhood. My home was a very violent place, and it really like sort of st- built this foundation of sort of what I still make my work about, which is not just violence, but about heroes as villains, villains as heroes. And so in this case, that would have been my father and trying to kind of understand the space between right and wrong, good and evil, black and and white. And so much of the work is overtly about violence as catharsis, or so like this uh, redemptive aspect of violence, in part because I just wasn't seeing a lot of work depicting violence in that way. And then a reckoning with my own personal history, and also like a comfort around violence. You know, I think many people who grew up in really violent environments have a higher threshold for like certain types of chaos. And I've always felt kind of comfortable in those spaces. And so it drew me to want to make work around the different ways that we kind of use violence beyond evil.
0: You know, for me, the history of violence in the Southern Appalachians, or really all of the Appalachians for that matter, is related to the history of extraction in the region. Particularly the extraction of coal, which goes back to the mid eighteenth century in, in the european American tradition, believe it or not I mean yeah, I'm sure you believe it, but I mean listener comma believe it or not, and of course has really begun to massively tail off during um, our professional lifetimes. Are you interested in extraction as violence, or is that less interesting to you than the than human interaction and and the way violence is expressed in the latter.
2: I guess I'm interested in that, but, you know, part of that story is about the Mountaineer, right? This, this uh, person who kind of was ushered in with Daniel Boone, Um, You could see some of the mountaineers were already there, but many of them came along with Daniel Boone. And they were, you know, uh, people who were trapped in the lower class in Scotland and England. They come over to America and they are trapped in that same system. And they realize that they can go into this mountain terrain and live a life that is outside of capitalism. That is, you know, where they can dictate how they want to live, and that group of people, the mountaineer, also has a, a real history of violence and feuding, as we know with the story of the Hatfield and McCoys, and it is an obsession that a lot of people have, both living in Appalachia and outside of Appalachia, with the that kind of feuding, and you know moonshine and drunken behavior that turns violent very quickly. And those are all things that are, I think, very much like Daniel Boone, still kind of living and breathing in the air there. And, you know, then what happens is the Mountaineer is in Appalachia living a sort of utopian life where they, you know, hunt, trade, farm. And so they have everything they could possibly want. And then these land surveyors come in and steal the land from them, literally steal the land from them. And they decide that they own it because, you know, the mountaineer didn't know that there was even paperwork to get to show that they owned their land. And it is those people who stole their land that trapped them in this poverty, a very violent poverty in uh, coal towns that were built by these land surveyors.
0: I believe that among the people trapped in, in that circumstance, albeit further west, was Abraham Lincoln's own family who left Kentucky over a surveying land dispute. I'm really interested in what you say about people feeling trapped. And one of my very favorite Stacey Kranitz pictures is kind of about that. It's a picture of two elderly white dudes standing in a cage that juts out into a quarry. And then the quarry is, is a very old, inactive quarry. We can see that the trees have grown up above and, and within it. I, I guess the obvious question is, how did you get that picture? And then secondly... What do you think of that as being a picture about?
2: I mean, I guess I was really drawn to that image because it is, there's a separation between myself and the subject and then the subject and the land. And so, you know, I think it gets at the heart of some of the things that are really important to me about insider-outsider relationships. Another thing that this, this work is also about.
0: Yeah, you know, what's great about that idea is that. So think of those paintings again, right? Yes. And and, and what happens in those paintings is Rannie and Bingham and you know everybody else is painting Boone as 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 being in the land of the land from the land, becoming part of the land. An idea that is fundamental to American nineteenth-century paintings of westering. You know, going back to like Cole and Duran.
2: And Manifest Destiny
0: all of it and so this photograph of yours which we'll have up on manpodcast.com you know turns the thing on its head you know the guys are caged within land one suspects they know pretty well and and can't get out
2: yes and it does very much speak to the story of the mountaineer of course Um, yeah yeah and what the coal industry did it it took um and gave very little in return it still is taking and giving very little in return.
0: You know, the next picture I want to raise is one that is about being trapped in a very different way, and that is by the extreme geology of of the region. I think people who have not traveled or hiked in the southern Appalachians don't realize how dramatic and steep it is how narrow and shallow the valleys are. How this is a region of great natural abundance, but that is extremely hostile to agriculture. Um, there just isn't the flat acreage to do it, you know, in, in, in most of the region. So there's a picture of yours that will also be on manpodcast.com of a very narrow valley, the gray houses that barely fill it. And you take that picture standing in a wintry forest. The tree limbs are between us and this narrow, Sitting valley to me, the tree limbs almost feel like like jail bars, and there are a number of pictures like this in your oeuvre that are of these really tight, shallow valleys. Do you find yourself drawn to those particular spaces because you think they can exist metaphorically, or do they just make for really good pictures?
2: I mean, I just think that they epitomize the um, coal town. The, so they really kind of illustrate how. Appalachia feels. It's a, a tiny town stuck in between two very massive mountains. And so that isolation that I feel when I'm in coming upon a, a community like that, I think it was like very important to figure out a way to depict that. And it took me a really long time to get it right. Uh, <laughs> And so there's a it's, few It's not images. something
0: of which there are a lot of photographs in, 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 in American photography. It's not well represented within the American canon.
2: Yeah, and it was tricky um, to figure out how to uh, show that kind of claustrophobia, the density um, and the remoteness all kind of caving in on each other.
0: Speaking of coal towns, you made, have made, maybe continue to make a whole bunch of pictures of mining, deep pit-ish mining, mountaintop removal mining, all of it. I, I would imagine that one of the things that you have had to consider as you kind of embarked on a project about Appalachia and the Appalachians Is how much you wanted to show, glorify, dwell on, insert a better word here, what extraction actually looks like in the 21st century. How did you think through that?
2: I think originally when I was making this work, I was much more interested in the history of depictions of poverty and what I was adding to that uh, conversation. But as I went, I became really enamored with the history of extraction in Appalachia. It is a really intense story. Like you said, you mentioned before, it's a violent story and it is when I, uh, so when I started this work was at the very beginning of a very dramatic downturn in the coal industry. And so there was a lot of talk about holding on to this thing that never really gave the people much of anything because it was constantly boom bust. So there was never any stability from this industry. And it is a place that is a mono economy. And that is, you know, a very tricky sort of thing to bear for any region. And it has only created more poverty as the coal industry has declined. Um, So my interest has strangely grown in terms of Uh, learning about the history of the labor movements and the coal community's role in uh, the rise of the unions and then the decline of the unions. (laughs) These are really fascinating stories. And so right now, I'm actually focusing on what post-coal Appalachia is, what it looks like. It's a very strange time. As the coal industry is declining, we're actually seeing a rise in Black Lung arise black lung younger miners. And so there's a lot of really interesting kind of things that kind of live in the vestiges of this mono economy um, that fascinate me.
0: How do you think through how much you want to show land and photograph land relative to how much you want to show and photograph people?
2: That's a funny question, because I've always seen myself as a sort of second rate landscape photographer. And so I think I've always worked harder <laughs> at making sure that the landscapes really depict a, a sense of the humanity without the actual humans. And so, I mean, I obviously, I know that you have a history and interest in landscape photography, but I love that that's the uh, images that you're focusing on. It really, It really is kind of delightful to me. I'm currently working with a drone and I'm (laughs) trespassing on uh, these strip mines, these massive strip mines. And I'm trying to figure out a way to make really interesting images that are very different from the kinds of images that we see of strip mines, usually taken from a plane. So obviously aerial depictions, but when you're actually in the mountains in Appalachia, it's very hard to see this devastation of whole mountains. And so some,
0: some of that is cuz industry is very good at hiding it
2: it it is very good at hiding it but but the reality is that the reforestation efforts are quite abysmal and a lot of this this flooding that we're dealing with is a direct result of the the, the land being moved for the purposes of mining it it's a really significant problem in the area there's a lot of water waves that have been have become very toxic from acid mine drainage and other uh slurry sludge. So yeah, so I just started working. I I, mean, I don't know how interesting this is, but um, but I just started a, a new project kind of trying to more deeply dig into this landscape and the violence of it. And I guess what interested me in doing that was that the challenge of it, the the difficulty of it, of figuring out a way to make those images interesting. And, you know, Being a photographer who probably excels at photographing humans, I figured it was a worthwhile challenge for me to undertake.
0: Yeah, I've noticed everybody asks you about the humans. Everybody asks you about the fights and the whiskey, but no one asks you about the land. And and it seems I
2: excel at fights and whiskey. (laughs) And drugs sex and making very murky exchanges <laughs> with my subjects that's what I excel at so here i am now a landscape photographer
0: a thesis within the work is that the people are how the people are because the land is how the land is you know there is a lot of suggestion in the work that the you know that what we were talking about before about people being trapped you know there 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 still is not in 2023 an east west highway across the state of west virginia They've been trying to build one in northern West Virginia for 50 years, and it's not even like halfway done. You know, it's a very rugged area. And the I think the
2: Coal Highway actually <laughs> is another highway project that is just kind of laying kind of half done, <laughs> but it's built on the top of numerous strip mines.
0: So I see in a lot of the work in the book, anyway, you're trying to find ways into the land. Cause yeah, I think you're right. You have, you have. A fluid facility with the people, but I see I see land pictures as working on on kinds of I don't know almost explanations. Speaking of all, of, of coal and the region's relationship with with coal and industrial exploitation, are you interested in foregrounding or? Do you, do you think about environmental justice as, as a specific subject, I think is what I'm trying to ask.
2: I do. And I have been with this newest body of work. But inevitably, it is not the environmental injustice, something that I have worked on in other projects. I have taken on environmental injustice, so I somehow continue to come back to it. But for me in the end, what's so interesting is that there is a lot of environmental injustice in Appalachia, but I, I find those stories to be quite simplistic. And the stories that really are complex and strange are like the stories of the labor history. So they're like peripheral stories too. So they're very much related. They're tangential to the environmental injustice, but they are, and then this, this, this story of, of the rise of black lung, which is really an issue of health issue of healthcare, but it is also very much related to environmental injustice. And so I started looking at things like uh, acid mine drainage, which is visually quite dynamic. <laughs> it's bright orange, but I, I just found this idea of coal making water dirty, so obvious and so clear. And so I think in the end, I am making a story about environmental injustice in central Appalachia, but it will really look at the people. <laughs> yeah.
0: Before you made photographs in, in the Appalachians, you lived in southwestern Louisiana. and I had
2: two Cajun boyfriends.
0: And you made a series of work <laughs> there. And I believe you started an MFA program in Louisiana before deciding that Irvine was going to be a little more difficult.
2: Uh, Yes. So I have a series of projects that I did in Louisiana. And uh, one of the projects is about Cancer Alley and a specific community there that is surrounded by the petrochemical industry. And I I think from the very beginning of my career as what you could even call a photojournalist, I've struggled with making work that is socially concerned and making work that is deconstructing that kind of concern in photography, in the history of photography. And so, what happens is, I get an idea to tell the story of an injustice. And I am trained as a photojournalist, so I can do that. And then I do it and I look at the work and I am really appalled, like I said, by that simplistic storytelling of that. Here's the problem it is ugly. We have done nothing to resolve this. And the idea, you know, which would go back to what, like Jacob Rees and Lewis Hine, you know, this idea of photography telling, you know, the story, like, you know, showing the people a problem, it feels like it's a return to that colonial construct for me. So it feels like it's an assertion of a right and a wrong onto a group of people. So I am telling in this case with the work in um Louisiana, I'm essentially telling the people that live in this community as though they don't know that they're they're surrounded by the petrochemical industry and that these images that I'm making of that industry is going to be seen by people who are going to feel so much concern and compassion for this issue that they will set out to change. It. And, you know, in the case of Lewis Hine and Jacob Rees, that actually happened, but it was a different landscape back then in terms of our attention, in terms of the media industry, in terms of the way we communicated issues. And so inevitably, what happens is I tell a story in that way. And then I literally, my skin crawls, I can't stand myself. And I feel like that storytelling is incredibly unauthentic and really serves no great purpose other than to tell people something that they already know a community something that they already know and so that is a starting point for me is a problem is is an injustice but inevitably i i have to meet that injustice with a deconstruction of the history of that place and all the different ways that we have i guess so this is like kind of hard to maybe verbalize but I have to address my hand, my role as an outsider coming in and telling people what is wrong. And that's kind of what I was trying to do with as it was given to me.
0: When I look at the work, whether it's installed on walls or in book form, I don't think of it as telling people what's wrong rather than as showing people what is and often how, or at least suggesting how it came
2: to be that way. I think that's because the work, as it it was given to me, I I sort of remove any vestiges of, of the problem and the answer to the problem. And so for me, it is a far more successful project than the project I did on environmental racism in Louisiana.
0: There is a photograph within the Louisiana pictures of a woman in a long white dress, looking at herself in a mirror. On the other side of the mirror, there's another woman in a long white dress. And seeing that picture reminded me that there are a lot of long dresses in your work and you wear many of them, which we'll we'll come to in a moment. Is that something you're just seeing a lot of or is there a pictorial or, I don't know, philosophical reason that so many long dresses end up on so many women in so many pictures?
2: My... First relationship to Appalachia, long before I found myself there to make a body of work over the last 14 years, was in my childhood on TV. I saw a miniseries called Christie, and it is originally a novel, a, a Christian romance novel by Katherine Marshall. And that story of Christie. Again, this is like the same stuff that we've been talking about. It is the story of someone, a missionary, going in to a community. In this case, she goes to the mountains to teach the poor mountain folk how to read and write and other things like clean themselves. And what happens is she becomes and un- well, she wears these dresses.
0: <laughs> so they're a, 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 I've read about Christie. Are they are they like specifically ankle length dresses on the miniseries and in the book? Yes. Ah. Uh, well, the book,
2: you know, they're not actual illustrations. Well, there is an illustration of her on some of the covers, but yes, uh, the miniseries has many of these dresses. And so I did, when I was a child, I became really enamored with this character and this idea of right and wrong and, and, and going in and saving a group of people. Uh, but what happens to Christy is she, she goes in and she becomes Undone. She realizes that her idea of right and wrong are not actually right and wrong. That there are many ways to be kind, be good, be true, be loving, and many ways to to do things. And that really got at the heart of what I am most interested in when I uh, make my work, which is I want to become undone by the people in the place.
0: You often wear long dresses in your own work. They are photographs that are recognizably of you. Are they self portraits? Are you performing a character? Are they something else?
2: Yeah, I am performing Christy as a character, a contemporary version of Christy, who's a little bit sluttier. Because in the uh, Christian romance novel, she does nothing more than hold hands with her lover. There are two men that she is like fine between the uh, doctor and the preacher. And, um, Things are different nowadays, and so so sometimes I those dresses are are cut quite short um, <laughs> in the pictures of me, but um, but
0: sometimes they're not.
2: Sometimes I mean, sometimes, sometimes not. the bottom
0: of the dress is dragging in a river.
2: It is true. Yes. And so I've gone through like different phases with how I depict Christy and and my relationship to Christy. But one of the things that really interested me in sort of making sure that I did depict myself in the work was that I wanted to draw attention to the arrogance of my position as the storyteller, as the photographer. And I also saw a corollary between the photojournalist and the missionary worker. You know, both are going into a place, asserting a right and wrong under the guise of, morality and capitalism. And I wanted to make sure that I connected those dots. And I wanted to find a way to do that in the narrative. And so it did. It's, it's strange, I was thinking about whether they're self portraits, because they are portraits that are taken by other photographers and sometimes subjects of, in the work and I do some directing and sometimes I do no directing so I don't know if they're self portraits but they are pictures of me and there's at least one in each section of the work and you know I'm I also when I was thinking about putting them into the project I was thinking about a way to show that what I'm doing or what I have been doing in Appalachia is sort of like I'm taking my fantasy that I have of this place, right? A fantasy that is built off of depictions in literature, depictions in a uh, CBS mini-series called Christie, uh, depictions in paintings, and you know, all of these different media. And they are colliding with the reality of the circumstances that I experience there. And I feel like that is what the work is. It is that collision. And I I wanted to find a way to really illustrate that just as as you think that you are looking at my portrayal of a place, my understanding and knowing of a place, I want to kind of rob you of that. And so the self-portraits sort of I, mean, I sometimes see them as kind of like a fuck you. And it's just like, yes, you think that I'm taking you on a journey to understand this place better, but I'm not doing that at all. It's not possible to do that uh, because culture isn't something that is got can be gotten right. It's not something that we can you have to experience and understand it for yourself. Other people can't assert what it is for you.
0: Embrace complication. I've noticed that when you have pictures of yourself in your exhibitions that there are not didactics that reveal them as pictures of yourself.
2: It's true. And I had a number of conversations with people, including Christine Potter, about whether they made sense at all in the work, whether they were even necessary and whether people would even know that they are, that, that I am placing myself in the work. And I think in the end, it was a very important part of the process of making the work was immersing myself in it and sort of kind of moving between that fantasy and that reality. And so I felt that those images had to be in there, whether people knew that they were me or not didn't really matter to me.
0: When you're making work, and I don't mean on assignment from, you know, magazine or newspaper, when you're making work that you know is going to be fully determined and presented and shown and published by you, when you're making that work and you're in front of other people, do you think about empathy?
2: I think about empathy a lot. I think more about intimacy and the erasure of the line between my personal life and my professional life. So my personal life, when I go back home and you know sit in my studio and process this work, first the me that is hanging out uh, in a community, engaging with people I meet, and I'm always looking for ways to erase that line. and. I thought about it a lot. Why is that so important to me? Because it doesn't make, I don't believe that it makes me a better artist to erase that line, but I think it forces me to dig deeper into.
0: There are a lot of Confederate flags in your work, and that reflects a decision to publish and exhibit those pictures, you know, not just make them, but to publish them and exhibit them. Did you have to think through that decision? And if so, how did that go?
2: I did. And I think one of the things that I first realized kind of early on was that it felt very normal to depict these Confederate flags because they were in a lot of the places, the homes that I was going into, they were there. And so to selectively edit them out felt kind of dishonest. But I also respect and understand that for people that is a really triggering symbol. But no, my work is contentious. And I'm sure if you have had conversations with your friends, some of them find the work really problematic and some of them find it really, they really are drawn to it. And that's always been the way this particular project and much of my other work has, has functioned. The contention is a really important part of the project to kind of get under people's skin, to sort of force them to question whether a, a Confederate flag should be in a book, about Appalachia, and so they inevitably. That's why those those images are there because they are a part of the fabric of life. In, they are less so, but you know, I started this project in two thousand nine, and so that was uh, you know before we started having I think some of our more successful conversations about the flag, uh, the Confederate flag, and so I drive from my house to. The, town into Smithville, and there used to be three Confederate flags that I would pass as I drove into town and now there are none and so I do believe that over time you know there's been a lot less of symbols of that kind of hate and that kind of history of supremacy so but it's still there and I I think if we ignore it then we are omitting those conversations that we need to be having
0: there are a few photographers who come to my mind, peers of yours, when I look at your work and I want to throw out a couple names, just to ask if they've been important to you, if there are things you've found in their work that you've carried forward or addressed yourself. First up, Larry Clark.
2: I have always been drawn to Larry Clark's work. I think that He started out and the first thing I was always drawn to was the self-reflective nature of the work. I always kind of see my interest in document photography coming from this rupture that happened with uh, Let Us Now Praise Famous Men, Um, and not so much actually Walker Evans, but more the text from James Agee and this sort of revealing of this kind of narcissism and this like, you know, he's talking about these these poor white sharecropper families, but he's also sexualizing them at the same time. And I felt like there was a real honesty in that. And I think that about a lot of Larry Clark's work as well, obviously starting back with Tulsa, but even up to the way he interacts with the subjects of his films, the actors and the actresses of his films. Sally Mann. I mean, thank you. (laughs) I think I'm drawn to Sally's work because of the dark themes. But I don't know that I would necessarily directly connect myself to her. But the fact that you are makes me feel really good.
0: I think Sally Mann believes in capital R romanticism and extends it. And I think, and I think you, that's why
2: I would yeah. feel kind of hesitant, uh, because that romanticism is such an important part of, of, her, of her aesthetic.
0: And you reject it in your work. You are You are not a German, Scots-Irish, Scottish, transcendental romantic.
2: It's true. It's true.
0: Carrie Mae Weems.
2: Yes. Very early on, I found her work and, of course, the self-portraiture. That's the part. Absolutely. Incredibly significant. Her and, I don't know, do you know um, Nikki S. Lee, her work? Yeah. Those were two artists that I was very much influenced by early on.
0: Nikki S. Lee is very much playing a role. And it's
2: it's like dissolving in this strange kind of identity crisis that is so fascinating to me
0: and then this last one i'm gonna ask about because i see him referenced almost every time you're referenced and i'm and i'm not sure i see it alex south
2: yeah i don't see it because i see alex his work is incredibly beautiful but it's it's romantic there's an optimism there that i don't see in my work but maybe someone else does i think there's some aspects of the way that we make our work that are similar and so maybe that's where that's coming from.
0: I think that's got to be it. Cause I don't think the work is similar,
2: <laughs> yeah, but yes, we're kind of I on think, the opposite end of the spectrum,
0: but you both get people <laughs> to look through the lens in ways that is provocative or no, in ways that make for provocative pictures. Finally, I think that nearly the earliest body of work up on your website is a series called target unknown, which is a series that show world war two reenactors who are reenacting as Nazis. And within that series, you play a role, and that role is Lenny Riefenstahl. Why did you want to be Lenny Riefenstahl, and what have you gotten out of it since?
2: So my interest in being a photographer, and originally actually I was really interested in being a documentary filmmaker, actually stems from Lenny Riefenstahl's memoir, which was published when I was maybe 15 or 16. And I purchased it at Barnes & Noble. And I don't know why I purchased it, but I did because I knew nothing about her. And I do remember that I was interested in her because I was interested in rebelling against my Jewish heritage. I think I was frustrated with religion in general. And somehow the fact that this woman was so awful, but also brilliant at the same time really interested me. I also really love the fact that this, uh, you know, she's this woman. That constantly reinvented herself over and over again. And she would, by any means necessary, find a way to do what she wanted to do. And so she would use her sexuality, she would use her status, anything and everything that was at her disposal. And I actually found that really admirable because she was living at a time when it was very hard for a woman. And she was, you know, one of the first women, I believe, to write edit and star in her own movie. And so she led this remarkable life. Again, she really spoke to that that thing that I was really interested in with my father, this idea that someone can be both so great and so evil at the same time. And how do we hold those people? And so from the very beginning of my interest in being an artist, Lenny Riefenstahl has played a really significant role uh, for better or worse. And when I went to do that project, the World War II project, I had no interest in portraying Lenny Riefenstahl, but it was an awkward experience to be surrounded by people dressed up like Nazi soldiers and in part because of my Jewish heritage, but in part because it was just very strange. And I would get nervous and I would start talking about Lenny Riefenstahl because I had read her biographies and read her memoir and watched that really incredible, there's an incredible documentary that she's in where she gets really upset and storms off. And so I just knew a lot about her. And these Nazi reenactors knew a lot about her because they had based their depictions off of her triumph of the will. And then I was, like many of my stories, you know, I start to tell the story and, and it feels very simplistic and kind of falls flat. And I felt like, oh, you know, here I am looking at these weird people who are dressing up as Nazis. And again, that was part of this, this body of work that was about violence, as catharsis. But I felt like that was incredibly one-dimensional. And I felt like if I was going to continue to make this work, I needed to complicate that. You know I needed to somehow turn that othering, that gaze a little bit more upside down. And so I had to dress up in order to be there. And so and usually when, <laughs> so when you're there, people don't portray specific people, like not someone's not actually portraying Hitler or Goebbels or any of these you know significant characters from the from the war. But I just decided to portray likestal. <laughs> I did. And people were into it. And then, you know, that's how that all kind of fell apart.
0: (laughs) One thing I could offer perhaps as a way of describing that project, maybe as as, as somebody outside it, is that it has no Hogan's Heroes vibes. It it has none of that sense of knowing winkingness. You know, in Hogan's Heroes, all of the Nazis are played, not all, but almost all of the Nazis are played by Jews. And And the show is created by Jews. Your series, which is Th- 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 does not have satire or dark humor within it very much seems to be of people who believe it's it, it, it's a series that seems to be of people who are really comfortable embodying an evil stacy kranitz thanks very much
2: thank you so much for having me this was really really lovely
0: that's all for this week's show